0: Please be seated, and as you're seated, turn your Bible to the Gospel according to Matthew, Matthew chapter 5. If you need a Bible, uh, please pick one up in the foyer. There are uh, Bibles that are available out there. We'll be uh, jumping around in a number of different passages this morning as we uh, work to understand uh, this scripture that Jesus gives us. We're in the middle of a study on the Sermon on the Mount. A sermon that Jesus gave to explain to his followers what uh, life following him looked like, what it was supposed to look like, and what it means to be uh, one of his disciples. And really, in a lot of ways, verse 17 through 20 that we're going to focus on today. It's it's kind of an overview of what he's going to work through over the next couple chapters. And so it's really a pivotal section as we ourselves in our own uh, preaching through this look to what's coming ahead in the next few weeks. So again, we'll be in Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to start in verse 17. This is the word of God. Do not think I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. These are the words of Jesus. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, would you fill us with your spirit, showing us where we're to turn away from, where we're to turn to. God, leading us in even decisions we have to make this week, helping us to think, even as we have our own relationships, even right now, and thinking about how we relate with them, and knowing, most of all, how we relate to and glorify you in what you've done. Father, we pray you be honored and glorified, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have you ever been falsely accused of something? Something that you, you know you didn't do, but somebody insists that you've done. Maybe it was something that had jail or court stuff, or maybe it was just an accusation from a family member or a friend, and you just said, that's just not something that I did. Well, if you've had an experience like that, you can relate with Jesus Uh, with a lot of his ministry, people saying that he did things that he never did. And that provides a bit of a context for the passage that we're looking at today. He was accused of things uh, because he just didn't fit the mold that the religious leaders expected of uh, somebody like Jesus. Um, There's things he didn't do that others did. He didn't fast like other religious leaders did. Could have. Could a man be of such spiritual importance if he wouldn't fast like the others did? Uh, He spent time ministering uh, to immoral people, you know, with sinners. We read that he spent time with sinners, with tax collectors, prostitutes. Did he know that spending time with immoral people only encouraged immorality? Also, he healed people on the Sabbath. His accusers say that, that he violated the Sabbath, and this was an affront to God. Instead of seeing the good of his work and the healing of people, um, all they saw was the violation that was there. His accusers made Jesus look like a person who flaunted God's commands. A flagrant sinner, not a God-fearing man who would honor God's law. Well, again, this is the background that we need as we look at verse 17 when we think of Jesus' words. When he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Jesus' message and what he's going to say from here to the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is he is not taking anything away from the law of God. He is not removing a commandment from the Ten Commandments. He is not skirting around the edges of immorality. In fact, the opposite is true. He was actually fulfilling and helping fulfill the heart of the law by getting to the heart of it. He was validating its true meaning, was showing its importance. He was showing that the Christian life wasn't just about some outward compliance or, or, or checklist checking, but it was ultimately about that changed heart that each one of us needs. He goes on to say, I have not come to abolish the law of the prophets, but to fulfill them. He's not coming in anti-Moses. He's not against the Ten Commandments. He's making it clear that he believes the Old Testament is relevant to the life of his disciples. He is not abolishing the law. In fact, he could not abolish the law. The Ten Commandments are not just something God plucked out of the air and decided to, to put on his creation. No, they are reflections of his own character. And so for Jesus to say anything about any of the commandments would be a denial of his own character, denial of his own nature the reflections of his own glory. Now, Jesus is making it clear here that the religious leaders lie when they uh, portray him as a loose man with low morals. Jesus never spoke against the law of God. He never even violated the law. I'm struck by passages like John 18, 46, uh, where Jesus asks this question, which one of you convicts me of sin? Right? He's opening up to a large group of people. Which of you can convict me of sin? I mean, husbands, try to ask your wife that. Wife, try to ask your husband that, right? Kids, ask your parents that. I mean, you know, none of us would have the audacity to ask that question, but he does because he's the sinless savior. So Jesus wasn't doing those things, not abolishing the law, but what was he doing? He was exposing hypocrisy of religious leaders of his day. He was exposing man-made traditions that were oppressing God's people and that we're keeping God at a distance these traditions were hurting people they were not helping and so we see Jesus have this frontal attack on on false views of the law and he wants his disciples to see how the law is fulfilled and how it's fulfilled for his people because this is how we're we need an understanding of God's law of the commandments of the old testament how do we think about applying it to our own lives today and that's key. That's key for a life that pleases God. It's key to understanding true holiness. It's key to joy. It's key to love. And so what we're going to look at today is how can we embrace the heart of God's commandments in our lives? You'll see an outline inside of your, um, inside of your bulletin if you want to follow along with our main points. First point is this. Don't get caught in legalism's snare. Jesus fulfilled that law with care. Now, if you've been around the church much, you've probably heard about the dangers of legalism a few times, and that's because it is a big problem. It was a big problem through the New Testament. It's almost every book of the New Testament addresses it in some way or another. And there are probably a few accusations of being uh, in the Bible that are worse than being legalistic. In fact, the Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians, he addresses the legalistic people around him as being dogs, and that wasn't a, 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 commend, a commending statement. But still, in our immoral world, we might hear people say that something is legalistic when it isn't legalistic. And it's important to understand what legalism is and also what legalism isn't. Now, here are some things that are not legalism. It is not legalism to obey God's commands. That's not legalism. It is not legalism when we expect others to obey God's commands either. It is not legalism to insist that belief in God will lead to life change. But if you do any of those and more, you will probably at some point be called legalistic. So that's what it's not, but what is it? And I, spent, I wrote down four things which uh, are Potential or descriptions of legalism just for us to consider today. Jesus spends you know, a lot of time talking about this throughout the passage and then into uh, the rest of the New Testament, so it's helpful for us to understand. One thing, one way that legalism shows up, it's the belief that salvation comes by obeying the law of God. Legalism is the belief that salvation comes by obeying the law of God. And this is the most raw form of legalism. It's the belief that if I do enough good things, then God will accept me and God will accept me. Sometimes it shows up in the person who thinks that if I do enough good things and those good things outweigh the bad things that I do, then I'll go into heaven. Legalistic person might say, uh, I think I'll go to heaven because I haven't done anything really bad. Um, In fact, I work hard. I show up on time, I keep my yard clean, and I'm a pretty good husband, and I'm a pretty good dad. But it also shows up when people say that you need to do certain things in order to go to heaven. That was one of the big problems that we see inside of the New Testament. Um, Jesus deals with it here. The Apostle Paul dealt with it numerous times as he would deal with Jewish teachers who say, well, you know, to be a Christian, you also need to be circumcised. And in order to be saved, in order to go to heaven, you have to take on this external uh, ceremony. That's a requirement. Another way that this shows up is saying that when a person does really, really bad things, that they can't go to heaven. Who defines those really, really bad things? And whether somebody's actually crossed that line, uh, usually it's the legalist does that. And usually they pick out something that they themselves are not guilty of. Right? Ignoring the one things or the list of things that they are guilty of. Now, the Bible is clear that salvation only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the only way that we will go to heaven. It's the only way that God will accept us. We can go through uh, verse by verse throughout the Bible. I'll pick out one in Galatians 2.16. But it's one of those that shows that salvation isn't through the things that we do. God doesn't accept us that way. Galatians 2.16, you can see it on the screen. It says, yet we know that a person is not justified. That means accepted by God. A person is not accepted by God by works of the law. That means by what he does. But through faith in Jesus Christ. We also have believed that Jesus Christ, in order to be justified by faith in Christ, and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Who will be saved through the works of the law? No one, right? You can underline that. And if we listen to Jesus' own words, when when people asked him, what does it mean to do the works of God? In John chapter 6, verse 28-29, Jesus answered them with this, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So when a person believes that God accepts them by the things they do, Uh, They have accepted some form of legalism. And there is no salvation inside that message, as the Bible is clear here. What is it that we need to do? We need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to realize that salvation is completely by God's grace that is found in Jesus Christ alone. And and that's it. That's the only way. All of us have broken God's commands. We've all fallen short of his glory. And there's no action in us that God is obligated to receive. That's why... uh, that's why Romans 11.35 says, Who has given to God a gift that God should receive him? There's nothing we could do that would ever obligate God to anything, especially because we're sinners. Now, it's by his grace he does provide a way. And that's why the scripture says in Romans 11.35, how, how the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God and, and, and wonder of his mercy and what he's done. That's the wonderful grace of God. So we see one form of legalism is the belief that salvation comes from obeying the law of God. There's a second form of legalism, and that's um, the way it shows up, is legalism creates new commands and obligates others to follow those rules before they're accepted as believers. So legalism creates new commands and obligates others to follow those rules. You can imagine it this way that if there's a cliff that's over here, and it's a very steep and deadly cliff, is that I might not wanna come anywhere near that cliff. And so what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna put a sign up there and it's gonna remind me, Sean, don't go over that cliff. And if I get nervous, I think, you know what, I still, I'm really nervous I'm gonna go over this cliff. Maybe I'll go another 20 feet out and I'll build a small fence up there. And I say, well, now I won't go over it. But maybe something happens, I get a little bit nervous about, you know, still, you know, I might wanna jump that fence and go over there. And so I got another 20 feet out, away from that cliff, and I build a, a 50-foot wall. You know, now I won't get over there. And if I am tempted, maybe I'll put barbed wire on top of it so I'm not going to go over over that um, fence and over that cliff. Now, where there are pieces of moral or religious danger, uh, people add commands, and that's just to be sure that they don't sin against God. They don't go over that cliff. And it, it can make sense that we do that. For example, you know, a, a man who uh, has has given in to the sin of of pornography use, you know, it might be wise to get rid of a computer, to insert a filter, to get rid of a cell phone, you know, to stay as far away as they can from that cliff as they can. A woman who struggles with bitterness might find an accountability partner, you know, to talk to and to bring those things up that they would not go over that cliff. Now, the problem, though, is when that requirement is passed on towards other people as their own obligations. Like it would be legalistic to say that nobody should own a cell phone because of the dangers that it possesses. I mean, maybe it would be wise not to have a smartphone. Maybe it would be helpful. But if we were required of anyone to even accept them as Christians, that would be too much. And there have been lots of things that people have addressed as these legalistic standards, from drinking alcohol, playing cards, even dancing, Uh, you know, and if if I wanted to, you know, I could make a case that maybe all those things are unwise, maybe all those things are unwise for me, even if I can't, but I can't say the Bible absolutely forbids any of them, so we might be able to think through those things, we have to think through those things, you know, we can think through education choices, we can think through, um, you know, a lot of decisions that we make, and I think there's maybe biblical wisdom, but without a command, you know, do we really, is that something that should be obligated as others? Or we add into God's word when we do that? And so when it comes to recognizing faith in others, we look to God's word. We look to God's standards. We don't look to our own. Do, does a person profess genuine faith in Christ? Do they show the fruit of faith in their lives? We don't add to more than what God requires. Another way that legalism shows up is in the overemphasis of obedience to commands and not enough of faith and grace. It, Legalism overemphasizes obedience and underemphasizes grace. Now, the main emphasis of Jesus in the passage is is not on obeying a set of rules, but that he fulfills the law of God. That's his emphasis, not on setting forth a new set of rules, but the, the thing is that he fulfills the law of God. That's what he said. I did not come to abolish them. He's not talking about getting rid of them, but he fulfilled the law. He did that in his death on the cross as an act of grace and redeeming people for himself. Now a legalistic person will focus less on the grace of God and more on what they should be doing and what they should not be doing. They may say they believe that salvation is a gift of grace, but they act as if obedience is more important. This especially happens they constantly judge the behavior of other brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, a legalistic person will try to get people to act the right way, but not be so concerned about the person's soul, the situation they find themselves in, try to help them to know and understand grace. Instead of encouraging others, they point out the problems in others. And because they focus focus so much on works and not the grace of God, they themselves will always have doubts if they have done enough. And here's the thing, that often doesn't work in seeing people changed. I mean, the best motivation for change is the grace of God. That's the best motivation. Not a list of rules, not a list of do's and don'ts. It is the grace of God. And we see this in the Apostle Paul's life. Once he met Jesus, you know, he found the true motivation for serving God. And it, it caused him even to level up his own obedience to God. Galatians chapter 2 Verses 19 and 20 is a bit of an autobiography for him in this. He says, for through the law, I died to the law so I might live to God. He realizes that he could not do the law. He realizes where he fell short, but he needed faith in Jesus. Then he says this in verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So he sees obedience is motivated by God's grace. His surrender of his life to do all the things that he did comes by grace. And that's how we see lives change. It is the overwhelming grace of God seen in the gospel of Christ. It's a big part of parenting. When our child tells a lie or some other mistake, you know, we can focus on the grace of God or we can just tell them, just do a little bit better. I do right things. We can say, bad kid, stop it, do better. Or you can say, you know, I've told lies too. And it's been hard for me to stop. I asked God to help me. I remember when Jesus died to take away my sins. He's forgiven me too. And I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to address your sins just as God has taught me to address mine. And you know, let's do this together. One thing we can all learn to do better is to bring things back to Jesus. Whether it's in our conversations. Conversations in the home. Conversations with our spouse. Especially conversations when somebody fails us or lets us down. When a child is obnoxious in the home. To bring more grace into those conversations. And not just, not just correction. You can come and talk about Jesus in our Bible studies. And sermons. And even conversations with neighbors. Keep coming back to Jesus. Who fulfilled the law. And he gives us grace. You know, as I go through these, I'm just reminded that every one of us can have a legalistic side to us. Every one of us can default back forget the grace that we've been shown, the grace we've been given, and speak to others as if um, our lives were just governed by the law and not by the grace of God. So legalism overemphasizes obedience and deemphasizes grace. The fourth thing, legalism gives grudging obedience to God just trying the least to get by. Legalism is a way to avoid a relationship with God. I mean, legalism has the attitude that says to God, God, just tell me what to do and I'll do those things. But inwardly, the legalistic person says, you know, as long as I just have to do what he tells me, I don't really have to think about those other things that he might also want me to do. A legalistic person says to himself, if I go to church, if I tithe, if I treat my wife reasonably nicely, God will give me happiness and easy marriage and success in life. You can see what the person's done. It's like creating God into a vending machine. If I just do this and I do this and I do this, you know, then I'll get what I want. But not treating God as a personal God. The God who's created us, the God who calls us to relationship. Jesus addressed this in Mark chapter 7. It was a group of religious leaders at the time, and, and they failed to care for their parents adequately. They knew there was a need to care for their parents. They said, ah, we can't do it. You know, we have uh, given all that money over to God. We've given it away to charity. There's no money left. And Jesus talks about them, and he's exposing the hypocrisy. He say, well, you've done these things that you want to do, but what about that thing that you know that you have a responsibility to do? He's going to go through it in the next uh, few verses. If we look ahead in Matthew chapter 5, you know, because people would rest on the fact, well, I've never murdered anyone. And Jesus says, well, what about that anger and bitterness and unforgiveness in your hearts? They said, well, we've never cheated on our wife. And Jesus says, well, what about the lust that you're harboring in your heart? And he's going to go on into more examples in there. And so there's this hypocrisy that says, well, I'm going to look good on the outside to look good to God and to others, but on the inside, I'm not really going to pay attention to what God's calling me to do inside in the the internal holiness of my heart. There are legalistic ways of trying to get out of truly serving God. And God's call is to a relationship that's fully surrendered to him. And in that way, a genuine relationship with God is far scarier because God can ask us of anything. But Jesus tells us to take up the cross and follow him. This is the only way of salvation. It's the only way that we know his power. What people do to try to get away from needing to trust God is they reduce the commands just down to simple requirements. Instead of knowing the Christian faith as a relationship, that's with God. And that's the problem with legalism. It will keep you away from God. Your, our behavior may seem good, but the legalism shows that you're separated from his grace. And the Bible is clear that no one will be accepted on the basis of our works. If you're trusting your own good works, you will find you've not done enough to get into heaven. You need forgiveness and the grace of God. And because that legalism will leave you insecure on the one side, you will really never know if you've done enough. You'll always wonder if you measure up. Your righteousness will have to exceed the righteousness of the most spiritual people, Jesus says. But you know your failures. You'll know for any good that you've done, you also have bad that you've done. And so you'll try to do more, more and more and more. And eventually, many would just give up, feeling bad, too hard. But on the other side, legalism will leave you prideful, full of pride The feeling of superiority, of judgmentalism, like there's two different levels of Christianity, the level that you've attained and the level that everyone else lives at. It shows up in being uncharitable uh, in the response of God's grace in others' lives. uh, Uncharitableness overall, but even uncharitableness when God's grace shows up. We see this in the story of the prodigal son, don't we? You know, the one son went away, blew all of his father's money. One son stayed back and was faithful. The older son stayed back and was faithful. The younger son came back. His father forgave him and threw a big party for him. And the older uh, son can't even come back in the party because of his own bitterness and anger of the grace that his father showed his younger brother. He became judgmental and resentful because of all the things that he had done. And legalism will also isolate you from others. These, legalism can, is judgmental. It's off-putting. It's hard to be around. You know, one thing we see in Jesus is the invitation that he had to others and the, the numbers that were drawn to him. And they knew of his love. They knew of his care. They knew his grace. It's what, as we read the, the stories of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that were drawn to him too, we say, look at this person who's so full of grace and kindness and love. Legalism will not lead you to faith. It will not lead you to Christian maturity. It will not lead you to salvation. We need something else. Before we go into that, in more depth, let's look at a second thing that keeps us from knowing the power of God. And that's license. That's our second point, license. My point is this. Don't give in a license sway. Jesus didn't throw the law away. Verse 19 uh, In verse 18, we see of Jesus dealing with this problem of license. That's because we might be tempted to think that once we have faith in Jesus, we have a license to sin, right? Our sins are forgiven. We can pretty much do whatever we want, as is written in the book of Romans. You know, why not sin so that grace can abound? The attitude is that, well, Jesus loves to forgive sins, and I love to sin. So that's why we have such a good relationship but Jesus says this in verse 18. He says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now an iota, that is a letter in the Greek alphabet. It it's like, looks like an I. It's very small. Just and, and then you're done with it. Hebrew has a similar letter, which Jesus may also be referring to indirectly. It's the yod. Right, it's a small, it's the smallest. It's basically almost like a tick mark if you're writing those things. And what Jesus is saying is, even this smallest thing, isn't being done away with. I'm not doing away with these things. Right, these things, the law of God remains until His kingdom comes. As long as we're in this sinful world, as long as we have the sinful flesh, we will need a law. One day we will not need a law, when we're in glory. Our bodies and hearts are healed. Our souls are restored to God. We will not be tempted to sin. There will not be temptations that abound. And we will not need a law, but not until then. Not iota will pass until all is accomplished. Then verse 19, he goes on to say, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. You see, Jesus, he's he's not come to give permission to sin freely, and that's not the point. He came to lead us in the paths of holiness. There's always been a tendency to downplay the commands of the Bible, justifying disobedience on the grounds that Jesus' grace covers all of our failures. And while it is true that, that Jesus does forgive our shortcomings and sins, that forgiveness should not be mistaken as an endorsement for continued sin. There's a phrase I heard years ago, and it was this. It says, God loves you just the way that you are, but he refuses to leave you that way. And that's why he came, to restore the image of God in you, to help you walk in the word of God. You must be willing to repent of anything which, which keeps us away from him. Anything that God's command says are wrong. There's a way that Jesus wants to conform us to the commands of God. It's not just an external behavior, but it's also internally as well. The strange thing about license, though, is that it's really often connected with legalism. It's the same motivation of heart, and that's the motivation to avoid the power of God. Really, it wants to avoid the power of God that wants to change you. The power of God that calls you to obedience. It's a refusal to obey when when obedience is challenging. And to keep God's demands at a safe distance. It's not hard to see how legalism leads to license. With a legalistic attitude, we think about the minimum God requires, just leaving a gap open for allowable sins, right? These ones are okay. It's the big ones we've got to deal with. Jerry Bridges wrote an excellent book once called um, Acceptable Sins. That was the title of it, Acceptable Sins. And he goes over ones that, that believers so often accept as just being okay and normal, like anxiety, discontentment, anger unthankfulness, selfishness, impatience, envy, gossip, judgmentalism. And a legalistic attitude is, is one that says, you know, I'm going to fight against the big things, but the little ones I'm going to let through. I remember when I was in college, and, and we, I was part of a campus ministry and teaching Christian faith, and, and a lot of students were, were dating, and one of the big questions was, well, how much physical contact is acceptable? You know, how far is too far? How how far is, you know, can we go romantically? And that really was a legalistic question there. If people were to say, well, you know, you can go this far, but you can't go any farther. And, you know, well, they would open up doors for even more sin. But the best answers that were said over and over there was, well, that's not the biggest question. The biggest question is, is how do we live in holiness before God? I mean, that's the questions that help students think through how God wanted them to live with holiness in their personal relationships, because that really is what it is. What does God want to do, not just with my outward behavior, but also inside my heart to draw me to him? Another thing to consider, I was thinking about this week, was our live stream. Hello, live stream people. We are glad that people uh, can check in. We are are glad to have it for our our shut-ins. It it is a ministry that comes to us even after the COVID-19 pandemic ended and the need for it. Uh, But as I was reading one book, there there was a story that was being told about a man. And this man, um, you know, realized, you know what, it's really kind of inconvenient to go to church. But I should go to church. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to live stream every week with my family and we'll live stream but I'm not going to go to church because if I live stream, I can go to church and I can do a couple extra, I can work while I watch the sermon. You know, and I, I can do other things while, while I'm going through that. And you can see maybe a legalistic attitude, right? It's the attitude like saying, well, hey, I need to do this to make sure the box is checked, but my heart really isn't there. And you think about all the things that are missed inside of that. You know, there's the fellowship of the saints together. To be encouraged in our faith as we grow together in Christ as we see other people pursuing Christ together. As we're involved in care groups, as we're interacting with one another. But it's also the blessing that other people have from him being at their, at, at, at their church. You know, When you come, when a lot of people come, you know, it's encouraging to see one another and to sing together. I mean, can you imagine if like, you showed up church one day and you were the only person who showed up? You'd be like, well, where did everybody else go? Why didn't they come? Would that be kind of discouraging? I think it would. Well, but sometimes, you know, like with this example that I was reading about this week, one person excuses himself to say, ah, oh, they don't really need me there. I got my check mark, but I don't really see the love that I can show to this congregation. So again, it's a matter of the heart. We know that there are people who shut in. This is the one place that they can connect with. We're thankful to have that. We're thankful people can see some of the things that we do, but we also recognize the matter of the heart is it something we're just trying to avoid, dealing with people, being around others, praising God, sharing my gifts with others, just trying to have a convenient life rather than seeing you know, God calls us to assemble together uh, with others. There can be a legalistic attitude which minimizes um, the desires of God. It's the of the heart we need to think about. All right, so where does this leave us with the law of God? You know, we've talked about license, we've talked about legalism, um, How do we approach this law of God? That leads to our third point, which is this. Trust in Jesus, so righteous and pure, his perfection forever sure. In verse 20, uh, Jesus says this. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The Pharisees apparently are not righteous enough. That's what he is saying. And here's the thing, that these were considered the most spiritual, the most religious people in the nation. They tithed. Of their finances. They fasted and prayed. I mean, giving up food regularly. I think the national requirement was to fast twice a year, but they fast twice a week. That's how serious they were and pious. Uh, They evangelized the lost. They regularly read the scriptures and they had a practice that would make uh, many Christians feel embarrassed. When yet Jesus said, lest your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, what's the problem? I mean, they were partial keepers of God's law. They were focused on the external matters, not the internal. More focused on impressing the people around them than having true godliness. There was a pride in keeping the law, and they they cast people out they should have welcomed in. Now, Jesus never condemns them for caring too much about the law. That's one thing he never does. He doesn't condemn them for that. But as religious as they were, they didn't care enough. True righteousness is external and internal. It's an internal conformity with God's commands. It's doing things right for the right reasons that, that the heart and the mind is addressed as well as the will and the actions. Now, the truth is that no law will make us entirely good. I mean, rules, they constrain behavior. But we need something more powerful. We need a force within us that compels us to do good. Righteousness is a work, therefore, that God does in us. And that's why Jesus so regularly focuses on the heart, why he gives these searching words. I mean the law of God is supposed to show us how we failed. The law was never intended to tell us how good we are or to justify ourselves by, it, but to show that we need a savior. Romans 3.20, for by works the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, for since the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law makes a perfect demand on us more than we can do. We are not righteous enough. So when we see Jesus saying that our righteousness must be more than the Pharisees and the scribes, we might wonder if there's any hope for anyone. I mean, those guys are so spiritual, they won't go to heaven. I can't do that. Is there any hope? No anger, no lust, perfect obedience. What do I do with my past sin? What do I do with my failures? What happens to them? I'm not righteous. I have no hope. Is there hope for me? Yes, there is. There's hope, and that is in Jesus Christ. And that's because he fulfills the law. He came to do everything that was required of us. He came to do everything that we had failed to do. And that's how he would reconcile us with God. He would save us from sin, saving to a new pattern of life. Jesus then fulfills that moral law. All those commandments, things we were supposed to do and we didn't, and things we weren't supposed to do, but we did anyway. He fulfilled those. Everything required salvation. But he also fulfills the ceremonial law. That means the religious laws. And he did that by becoming a sacrifice of atonement for us. The the Old Testament sacrifices were given uh, to, to cover over the sins of God's people, to show that a covering was needed. They were required to be made together with other practices like circumcision. And when Jesus died on the cross, he did it to pay the sins of every person who would believe in him, making that whole system, you know, that Old Testament system, obsolete because he had fulfilled it. So you see, you can have a righteousness that is greater than that Pharisees, a righteousness that is powerful enough to bring you in the kingdom of heaven, and that is Jesus' righteousness. That's what Second Corinthians five twenty-one says. It says, For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the gospel of Jesus fulfilling everything needed for us to be free to enter in God's kingdom. And now that he has done everything, our job is to follow him by faith, is to believe in him. We don't have to worry about being condemned. We don't have to keep a checklist to be sure we've done everything. Jesus has fulfilled the law for us. And so, when it comes to understanding the law and the rules of God, we don't slip into legalism where we focus on just getting the rules right, and we don't focus and we don't slip into license where we disregard the moral requirements of the Bible. No, we stay grounded and we stay grounded in Jesus. Ten Commandments don't go away. But Jesus has, in his perfect obedience, fulfilled it in his heart and in his action. He's done a way. He's done it in a way that can be credited as our own. Right? And so, you know, how do we avoid those? We keep our eyes on Christ, focused on him. We're following him, following his commands, following his life, obeying him in everything. <laughs> There's another way that Jesus fulfills the law. And he fulfills the commandments inside of us. That's by stripping away the power of sin. He kills the power of the sinful heart, and he gives a new heart. This is the promise of the new covenant. We see it in Ezekiel 36, verse 25 and 27, where he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleanness, from your idols. I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful, to obey my rules, a new heart, one that is responsive to God's word, one that is is capable of obedience to his commands, that's the gift of Christ, that's one way that he fulfills this, this in us, it's no longer sin that has the ultimate say then, it's God's grace, his love, his forgiveness, all given to us in Jesus Christ, I mean that's the thing that frees us from legalism, that's what frees us from licentious behavior. It's that new heart that longs to please him. With all this free grace, then what is it that compels us to obey Christ's commands? Why don't I just keep it going the way we are going? Or do we need a new legalism? And the answer is no. Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets. We keep our eyes on Christ. Colossians chapter 3. There's no slide on this one. Colossians chapter 3 makes this pointed. when it addresses keeping our eyes on Christ. It says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek things that are above. You have been raised with Christ. You died with him. When you believed in Christ, you were united to him. And as he died, the power of sin died within you. And as he was raised to life, the power of new life was raised in you. And so what do you do in light of that? The power of heaven is in you. So you keep your eyes on Christ. It's in you through your union with Christ. And so you keep your eyes on things that are above where Christ is. We keep our eyes on Jesus, where he's seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things of the earth. We have been raised with Christ. He's fulfilled the law for us. And so we stay grounded in him. We're going to have to repent of sin, yes. And we're going to be called to challenging and difficult disobedience. We don't want anything to come between us and Christ. But our job is to learn by, to live by God's grace. Guilt is taken away. Grace is established. We have a new heart. We don't see God by the offense of our sin or afraid of punishment. But we see him as our redeemer grace and love. And that's the maturity. That's the maturity of growing up in Christ. I remember as a kid... Uh, my parents would give me a list of chores, and I'd just be sure that I, you know, they'd write them down with check boxes to make sure I'd do them, and I, and I did them because I didn't want to get in trouble. But I didn't really cultivate a desire to have a clean or an ordered home. I just did my job and I ignored everything else. Now, now I'm a homeowner, I'm a parent, and I care about the house looks, and so I don't uh, need the checklist like I used to. Um, And so what Jesus is doing, he's turning people in maturity to turn, to stop being list keepers into those who love God's law, love the law of God, and they're in a relationship with him. And so that's, that's that's his invitation to you, to receive his grace, to walk by that grace, to know the joy of forgiving sins and the joy of seeing sin lose its power, that you'd be able to enjoy God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we rejoice in the freedom that you've given us in Christ, how Jesus fulfilled the law for us, how He met the demands of the law on our behalf. And God, as we look at what he's done, help us not to replace that with legalistic, hypocritical attitudes. Help us not to re- replace what Christ fulfilled with our own sinful works. But Father, help us walk in holiness, not in the lust of the flesh. And Father, maybe there are some here who are gripped with the fear that comes with the law help them know that the forgiveness of christ takes away the base of that fear maybe there are some here who are keeping you away think of that if they can do enough to please you then they will only have to give so much help them to know the power of a relationship with you god thank you that you've saved us even when we we're in our sins and help us to live in a way that pleases you do the work that's needed in us we pray all this in jesus name amen